Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, I ask that you would help me uh, as we work our way through this first chapter of Daniel, Lord, that you would help me to uh, keep my thoughts in order, that I would share that which you desire me to share. Uh, Father, we ask that your spirit would guide us, um, that he would illuminate the meaning of the text, that you would uh, guide us in our study. Lord, soften our hearts that we would hear a word from you, uh, that you would encourage us uh, through your word. Help us to understand uh, the big picture as we go through Daniel. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God. He brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he brought the vessels into the treasury of his God. Then then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youth, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were to enter the king's personal service. Now among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. To Daniel he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or with the wine which he drank. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials that he might not defile himself. Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials. And the commander of the officials said to Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has appointed your food and your drink. For why should he see your faces looking more haggard than the youths who are your own age? Then you would make me forfeit my head to the king. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days, and let us be given some vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youths who are eating the king's choice food, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, their appearance seemed to be better, and they were fatter than all the youths who had been eating the king's choice food. So the overseer continued to withhold their choice food and the wine they were to drink and kept giving them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. Daniel even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. 
Then at the, end of the te- at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them, the commander of the officials presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and out of them all, all, out of them all, the, the, let me start over. The king talked with them, and out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. As for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and conjurers who were, with, who were in all his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Father, we do thank you for your word. We ask that you would bless our time now. It's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we, today we're continuing our study in Revelation by starting Daniel. Um, uh, Revelation, it was written in A.D. 90. We're going back in time 700 years. Um, so we're, we find ourselves at the beginning of Daniel at 6, 605 B.C. Um, Daniel is to the Old Testament what Revelation is to the New Testament. It's, it's a foundational book. For understanding the things that are in Revelation. That's why we're pausing Revelation at the end of chapter 3. Before we move forward in Revelation, we, we need to understand Daniel. There's, there's always so much strain when, when teaching the scripture. You can get lost in little segments. And so I've sort of laid out Daniel and Revelation in a way that I'm forced to cover a lot of territory. Um, our our plan right now is to finish Daniel on February 3rd, and then we'll pick up Revelation, and we should be done with Revelation uh, prior to the trip of Israel, whenever that day, it's April 5th. So like in the beginning of April, we'll be done with Revelation. My big star there is we still are planning a, a big flyover of the middle section, which will make some people unhappy, but that's just what it is. <laughs> you know, we're, um, I, I, we need to keep the big picture so that you can have understanding. I will give you tools and I will equip you and I will lead you in the right direction for your own personal study. Um, as we go into Daniel, we're shifting genre of, of literature. We're moving into sort of uh, hi, uh, historical narrative. Um, it, it shifts how I have to present things. I'm reminded this week how, how at times it's so much difficult because I absorb, you know, like uh, a thousand grains of sand of information and I'm allowed to pass on three grains of sand <laughs> to you all. Um, and so there will be lots of things like handouts. Like you'll notice in the bulletin, I've given you a, a handout to kind of give you more information uh, to sort of, if your palate is wet for more, you can, you can search and, and go and learn more. There's so much here. When we look at Daniel, the theme of Daniel, it's very easy to get distracted with all the little things. Daniel is not about diets. It's not about um, how to walk through hot coals. It's not about going through all this stuff. The theme of Daniel, is I'll say this twice, there is a God in heaven, and he is sovereign over the nations. He is directing and shaping world history towards his own end. So throughout this letter, we'll see crazy Nebi, old Nebuchadnezzar, who seems to be super powerful, super mighty. But behind the curtain is an almighty God who is controlling everything that's happening. 
Um, so appropriate what Scott said today about like governments come and go. There's a sovereign God who appoints the leaders, whether we understand or not. We have a God who's in control of all things. So the theme of Daniel is there's a God in heaven and he is sovereign over the nations. He is directing and shaping world history towards his own end. You could outline Daniel a couple simple ways. One simple way that I don't really like so much is chapters 1 through 6 is the prophet Daniel. Then you could take 7 through 12 and say the prophecies of Daniel. That's almost too simple for me. Um, a, A little bit deeper of an outline is chapter 1 is God's sovereign rule over Daniel. Chapters 2 through 7 is God's sovereign rule through the Gentiles or over the Gentiles. Chapters 8 through 12, God's sovereign rule over Israel. This book is an interesting book. The languages will shift from the early part to the later part. We are not going to worry about that between Aramaic and, and Hebrew. Um, mainly with the content of who it's addressing. Uh, There's even a chapter where old King Nebi speaks to us. He shares, Daniel gets his information and lets us hear what he's thinking. Let's get into the text. Uh, Verse 1, we read, In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Um, this is an important time stamp. We know that this, from this verse, we know that the things that he's writing about are occurring in 605 BC. Um, I'm not old enough to remember a lot of countries being taken over. Like I have no recollection of Europe being uh, occupied by taking over and, and uh, the, the battle that started there. I have no recollection of Vietnam, the war starting there and, and troops going and taking over. I do have memories of the first Iraq war invasion of, of our troops going in. I had friends that staged you know, fake explosions coming up the beach. And, um, but, but I was in Kuwait on the 10-year anniversary of the liberation of Kuwait and being there during the anniversary, it, it, it affects your mindset. I mean, it just changes how you see things. Uh, we as Americans were very well received in Kuwait. On the 10-year anniversary, they were very thankful. As a SEAL, I was given sort of special access and, and tours to places, seeing their buildings that 10 years later are still riddled with gunshots. Um, people talking about the horrors of what Saddam Hussein had done to them, uh, sharing stories of the buildings with the spikes, and they said that their soldiers came in, and they just started taking people up in these helicopters, and they would begin interrogating them. They would chuck a guy out, try to spike him on top of the roof, and then they look at the next guy and say, now start talking. That the, just the, the horrors of, of this invasion that they had gone through by Iraq. Uh, later than as a SEAL instructor, there was one Kuwaiti kid that we were putting through training, and this kid, like, during Hell Week was... Like, he was performing at a top tier. Like, he was making it through the program on his own right, which foreign nationals don't normally do. And I remember at one lunchtime, that's, it was lunchtime for them, but you guys wouldn't consider it lunch. They were <laughs> sitting in the water in the waves, too, you know, freezing cold, eating a little meal in the sand. 
I was like, hey, whatever, I forget the guy's name. I'm like, what's your deal? Like, why, why, where's your intensity coming from? Why do you care about this so much? Like, you're not American. You're not going through a program. You're not going to get anything out of this. And he looked at us with cold eyes, and he says, I'm going to go kill Saddam. Whoa, cowboy. <laughs> what do you mean you're going to go? What? That's like, easy. And he's like, when I was 12 years old, the door knocked. I answered the door. They asked for my dad. My dad came to the door, and they executed my dad right in front of me. And he's like, I'm going to go get Saddam. I'm like, this kid is not joking around. Um, we read this one verse, and we have no clue as Americans. We've never been evaded. We've had attacks on our soil, of course, but we've never experienced in the third year in the reign of Jehoiakim, who is Israel's most evil king, which makes no sense because he's directly related to Josiah, one of the godliest kings in the greatest revival, which I think there's one lesson here that you necessarily, like in Daniel, there's sort of like as parents and grandparents, you want to pour in godliness to your kids, but there's nothing that guarantees it. And so you have this, this direct descendant of a godly king who's the most horrible of kings, and we're told that he was invaded by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Now to pause there, Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So this is where I have all of this information that I've got to figure out how to deliver it to you guys. This is a map of Israel. I hope you can see it. Um, there's the northern kingdom, and then there's the southern kingdom in the very light here. The northern kingdom was ten tribes. They were taken over by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. If you're an Israeli, if you're a Christian, there's, there's key dates that you should know. 722 B.C. is a critical date. That's when the northern kingdom was taken into captivity. About 150 years later, not exactly. You do the math from 722 to 60, or 586 is the date that they is always identified with the, the fall of um, Israel, but it's not necessarily accurate. Um, so the northern kingdom fell. 100 to 150 years later, I just don't want to do the math right in front of you right now. Um, then Judah, the southern kingdom, it falls. But its fall happened in three waves. The first was 605 BC. This is what we read about here, Daniel being taken into captivity. There's like so much historical stuff. If you guys want to fish and study and see, it's fascinating. Um, but but the, the bottom line is Nebuchadnezzar is like going through, taking and like just pillaging everything. And he goes down there and he's pillaging, but word comes that there's an opportunity for him to take the kingdom. And so he's sort of, he's like, oh, I'm going to go back to my homeland to, to assume the kingdom to take it, to make it official. And so then we read about this, this first wave of, of people that are taken. And then in uh, 597 B.C., that's the wave of Ezekiel, and I believe it was like 1,000 or 10, like I can read my notes here. 10,000, I thought it was bigger than 1,000. Then a, a whole herd of people are taken in that wave. Finally, in 586, if you ask any Jewish person, they will know 586 B.C. This is when the temple was destroyed. And so the third wave, Israel is, is totally decimated. Um, there's so many things that can be said about this. Israel would fail to exist as a nation until 19, was it 47 in May that, that they were re uh, constituted as a nation 2,000 years later. 
Um, so they were taken into captivity for 70 years. The 70-year date goes from 605 BC, this first wave that we read about. Horrible. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This was horrific. Terrifying. Families ripped apart. People killed, murdered. The same thing. I mean, it just, just the whole place was utterly destroyed. And then if, if that's not bad enough, then verse 2 gives the theological underpinnings of why did it happen, which is even harder for us to recognize at times. Verse 2 we read, The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought with them to the land of Shinar. Shinar, quick pause. If you study Shinar, you'll see that in, it's first mentioned in Genesis 10.10, and then I think again in 11.2. This is... Uh, within the geographical region where the Tower of Babel happened, where the people wanted to be their own gods. They were trying to get up there and, and sort of have dominion over everything. So the people of Israel, or this first wave, they're taken to this land where the Tower of Babel first existed. We're told that these, um, these things from the temple... These vessels of the house of God he brought with him to land of Shinar to the house of his God and he brought the vessels into the treasure of his God. So this was a sign of like utter um, conquering. Like we've conquered you, we've conquered your God, your God is now in residence under our God's authority because our God is greater than your God. But verse two, in the beginning we see the Lord gave. The God of Israel is the one who allowed this to happen. And as we go through Daniel, we're going to see these, these kings, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, calling all the shots with all the authority. But the theme of Daniel is God is sovereign over all. Verse 2, the Lord gave. Verse 9, now God granted. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them. God is in total control of the situation. And the irony is if you read the Old Testament and you look through the history of Israel, it's as if it's like this broken record. The, the Israelites would kind of get right with God, then God would bless them, and then they would kind of go back to their old ways. But over and over and over again, they say, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king. We want to live like them. We want to have their same lives. We want to, it looks so much better over there. And then God gives them over to their wishes. Romans one twenty four says, therefore God gave them over. And it's almost like God's punishment, his consequences are giving us our wishes. You want to be like the other nations? You want to be like Babylon that looks so great? Here, I'll let you go live with them for a while under their authority, under their control. This is not a surprise. If you'll turn with me towards the back of the Bible, Habakkuk. We've gone through this book in Habakkuk 1, verses 5 through 6. Now, while we're going to the back of the Bible, we're not chronologically moving uh, forward in history. We're actually moving back in time. The Bible is not laid out in chronological order. It's, it's sort of laid out by types. So you have history in the, the first part of the Bible. Then you have wisdom literature. And then you get to the major and minor prophets, which 
uh, has to do with the size of the writing, not necessarily the importance of the writing. And so now when we come to Habakkuk, depending on when Habakkuk wrote this, we know that Habakkuk existed from, or his ministry was from 621 B.C. to 609 B.C. And so the, the point of the story that we're reading today is in 605 B.C. I've done the math. I've written it down. So we're either going back between before years and 16 years in history from the time of Daniel at the 605 mark when this first wave of conquering happened. Habakkuk, who sort of lived uh, toward the latter part of Josiah, things were deteriorating, and, and he's looking around, and this, this, this letter of Habakkuk is fascinating because it's like a, a prophet's diary to God. And he looks around and he says, how long, God, are you going like, to allow this injustice to go on? How long am I going to cry out and you're not going to listen to me? And then in verse 5, look what God says. He answers to Habakkuk. He says, look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. And I could imagine little Habakkuk going, this is awesome. Day of reckoning is coming. And this is how a lot of Christians act, you know, like, but God might not be doing what you think he's doing. <laughs> Verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans. Now I want to mention Chaldeans and Babylonians. This word is interchangeable. They're, they're one and the same. So if I say Babylonians or I say Chaldeans, it's the same thing. He says, I am doing something in your days that you would not believe if you were told. Verse 6, for behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people. And he goes around their whole violence, like all the way through the, like the first 11 verses, he describes these Chaldeans. They're fast, they're furious, they're strong. Nobody can stop them. They got chariots that can destroy everything. They are going to basically, I think it says their warriors are like sand. They're just numerous and they just go and they demolish and they wipe out everything in its path. Then you get to the end of verse 11 and he says to Habakkuk, even though I'm going to raise up this impetuous people and they're going to do, uh, they're going to bring uh, horrible times to my people in Israel, I will still hold them guilty, they whose strength is their God. So five to 15 years prior to what we read in Daniel, God had already said that this was going to happen. All right, then we come to verse three. I got to move along here. So verses three through seven, we're going to see the strategy, very wise strategy, this this. This happens all over the place. If you read uh, you know, World War II stories about Hitler and what he did with sort of brainwashing the youth, indoctrinating them, um, this is, it's been going on for a long time. And so in verse 3, we read, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials or eunuchs, to bring some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and all of the nobles' use, in whom was no defect, and who are good-looking, showing intelligence in every brand of wisdom, endowed with understanding, discernment, discerning knowledge, who had the ability for serving the king's court. And he ordered them to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank, and appointed that they should be educated three years, at the end of which they were to enter into his, the king's personal service. Now among them were the sons of Judah, were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. 
the commander and the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, Hananiah, Shadrach, Mishael, Mish, uh, Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abad, Nego. I was going too fast and I got overconfident. Um, <clears throat> so he acquires a bunch of these youth. The, the word here, there's some variance of what ages we're talking about. The general consensus is these, these kids were between the ages of like 9 and 15. Um, these were the cream of the crop that Israel had to offer. The, these are the royal kids. Um, they had good looks and wisdom combined. They had, uh, um, they had etiquette where they could, hand, they could handle themselves in high places. Um, it's believed that about 70 kids were taken in this. And out of the 70, four sort of uh, scored the highest marks. Um, they were going to go in for indoctrination, for training, to learn the language. And the goal was to be that on the outside they would look like good Jewish people, but on the inside their worldview was Babylonian. Um, there's been a lot of similarities between higher education but it's the same concept. You send your kid away to college for four years. They're really young. They're influenced. You've either given them the worldview that they're going to survive or uh, the kids are going to make a decision to go away. Um, the military was the background I kind of, the route I went. You know, everybody goes into boot camp, goes into SEAL training. Y'all look different. By the end of it, y'all kind of look the same. Like you go to like a BUDS graduation or boot camp graduation, it's like, hey, there's Johnny. They all look the same to me. <laughs> like, I don't, like, you, you, you can't tell a difference. And so over the course of this three years, they were to be educated. Um, they were to be wined and dined. They were given the finest food. This is food from the king's table. So they were eating and living better than the average Babylonian. And this would happen for a course of three years. And at the end of which, the king would look amongst the ranks of the 70, and we'll see that he's going to handpick four guys. They're going to enter into his, his, perfect, his, his, uh, his service. He'll develop a relationship with these lads. And then as the conquering happens, these will be his sort of uh, representatives to the nation of Israel. It's a, it's a perfect plan to sort of, he's like, look, boy, this, this is your best. Look at them. They're good Jewish boys. But their minds, in his eye, would be totally... Babylonian, and would lead the people away from their God. Now we read in Daniel 1.8. Uh, before, I, before I move along, let's, let's, uh, let's talk about the name changes. So Daniel, it means, do you know the name, meaning of your name, Daniel? This pop quiz? Amen. Good job. So Daniel means God is my judge. His name was changed to Belteshazzar, meaning Bel, which is one of the Babylonian gods, Bel's prince. Hananiah means Yahweh is gracious, was changed to Shadrach, which means illumined by the sun god, another one of the Babylonian gods. The name Mishael means who is like Elohim, was changed to Meshach, Meshach meaning who is like Venus, a third of their gods. Then the name Azariah, which, mean, which means the Lord is my help, was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nego, which is another Babylonian god. 
So they were stripped of their names. And it's fascinating to me, I don't know why it is, but Christians, I I haven't gone into the Christian culture to see, hey, how do you guys refer to these guys? Because we refer to them as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel keeps his Jewish name, but we've gone with the Babylonian names, which really in a lot of ways is disrespectful to them. Why don't we like, probably because it's hard to remember their Jewish ones, but man, I like, I'm feeling convicted. Like I want to give these boys back their proper Jewish name, you know? Um, So everything was changed about them. Now Daniel in verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind that he would not defile himself with the king's choice food or, or with the wine which he drank. So a line was crossed in the sand for Daniel. He could do all the learning. He could go through all the indoctrination. He could do all of this stuff. He had no problem with it. But there was something about the food that was a line in the sand that he just simply couldn't cross over. And this food wasn't bad. This was the king's food. This came from the king's table. I'm thinking lamb chops, tri-tip, bacon, like all of the good, like all of the good stuff and the, the wine that was the best in the world But the Old Testament, the law, made it very clear about certain foods. And it wasn't that this food was bad or unhealthy or anything like that. It's that the food that made it to the king's table had gone through a process of being offered to their gods. And then to eat their food was an act of worship and acknowledging how awesome the gods of Babylonia are. And Daniel says, I can't do that. It's interesting that this word made up his mind is a, is a Hebrew sort of word that sort of means to like gather stuff, to gather things and to put it together. You, you could use it for like a bird. Like you see birds flying with a little twig. What are they doing with that little twig? So a bird flies with a little twig and all of a sudden you find the nest. And it's like, that's amazing. They took a little twig and then they put it there and then they get another twig and then they have like a perfect little nest and then they find lint from the dryer and then they put it in there and make it like... So they gathered all this stuff to make something. And so sort of the the picture here, did Daniel have the Bible with him? No, of course not. He was taken into captivity, war. He He had the clothes on his back, probably even naked when he was taken. It depends on how they treated it. Normally they would strip him of everything and walk him in, but... This was a different situation, that these were young men that they were grooming. So maybe he had the clothes on his back. He had no Bible. He had no, all he had is that what, that which was invested in him, put into him by those around him. And I think there's a lesson for parents to pour into your kids, to grandparents, for us as a church, if they're not even your kids, to be putting spiritual truths into the young people. Now, there's no guarantee that they're going to draw from it later in their life. But here Daniel is, in this circumstance, apparently 66 of the other guys didn't draw from him. They were just absorbed into Babylonian culture as the king intended, but these four guys stood out. And it's like Daniel took the bit of truth that he had in his mind, and he says, I can't do that. But look what he says. So he sought permission. He, this is like, having a conviction that's firm, 
but it works itself out in a respectable, um, gracious way. I think we can learn from that. There's a lot of things in verse 8 that we can learn from. I I think convictions, those don't happen in the spot. When you're in the hotel room, on the road, all by yourself, and you're flipping the TV, that's not the time to start wondering about your convictions. When you find yourself in compromising situations, in order for you to survive with integrity, the decision needs to be made long before you're in that situation. When I talk with people who struggle with sin, who go through things, the one thing I always do with them is like, let's go through your battle plan. What were you doing when you stumbled in this? Well, I was with these friends. And they started smoking, drinking, or doing whatever you want to fill in the blank. It's like, okay, well, maybe next time those friends ask you to go hang out, maybe you say, hey, I'm busy. And you don't go hang out with them. Because if you go hang out with them, the likelihood of you being able to stay strong is probably not going to be there. Then... Daniel, with his convictions, humbly seeks permission. He doesn't go on a hunger strike. He doesn't start tweeting or Facebooking or, you know, like whatever, like disgruntled against his convictions and his boss won't do this. This is a kid that understands that God's in control and God is sovereign. And I believe that if, if God didn't open the door for him and he had to eat the king's he would have eaten the king's food. Like, I, that's just my gut, no pun intended. But he demonstrates so much wisdom and humility. So he sought permission from the commander of the officials, or you could translate that word eunuchs, that he might not defile himself. It wasn't about health. It was about defiling himself because this food, this wine, had been offered to false gods, and to eat it, to partake of it, would be just the same as in chapter 3 when they were asked to bow before the golden statue. Bless you. And in verse 9, we read, Now God granted Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the commander of the officials or eunuchs. So when Daniel goes to this guy, he explains his situation. He said, I'm going to go along with your program. I'm going to do everything that you ask me to do. But when it comes to this food, I, I can't. And it seems like the guy says, I'm really compassionate. I really, like, I'm all for you. Like, but the problem is if I do this, my head's going to get lopped off faster than I even know what happened to me. He said, the commander of fish says, I'm afraid that the Lord, my king, who has appointed your food and your drink for you, why should he see you guys looking all haggard? And when he sees you guys looking all haggard, then the, the, use, the other use that are with your guys that are eating like they're supposed to be eating, what's going to happen to me is there's not going to be mercy. I'm going to lose my life. And I'm sorry, kid, but I can't do this. Daniel doesn't seem to put up a fight with this guy. But he also doesn't seem to quit. That's verse 11. But Daniel said to the overseer, whom the commander of the officials appointed over Daniel, and Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So he goes to the number two guy. The commander apparently said, no, I can't, like, I'm compassionate, I feel for you, but my neck is more important than your, like, convictions. But then Daniel goes to the guy that's the number two guy who is directly over him. And he said, I have this idea. Let's run a 10-day test. 
Please test your servants for 10 days and let us be given some vegetables. This word would include uh, grain, like I don't, a lentil, I guess that's a vegetable maybe. I don't like it's, it would be stuff that he could survive on, but it would also be stuff that wouldn't be offered to, to idols. This, this would be un, food that hadn't been worshipped and it would be no act of worship for them to eat these things. So he says, give us 10 days, vegetables and water to drink. Then let our appearance be observed in your presence and the appearance of the youth, youths who are eating the king's choice food and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in the manner and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, their appearance seemed to be better and they were fatter. I heard you guys giggle about that. I giggled too. I mean, it's kind of like, it doesn't make any sense. Like, I wish barbecue was the path to skinnierness, like whatever. <clears throat> but it's kind of like this mystery, like I don't, you know, and I know there's a scientific explanation, I'm not looking for it, but it's like when my kids were like breastfeeding, it's like, how are they doubling in weight just drinking milk? Like, how is that possible? And it's like they're eating this stuff and the fat isn't bad. It's like they're, they're healthy. They're getting strong. Their muscles, they're, they're getting all their nutrients. So this overseer, the guy that's directly involved with me, he's like, I'm gonna keep do I'll keep doing this for you guys. And so he continued to withhold their food and their drink. I bet he was skimming it. <laughs> like, you guys don't want it, I'll take it. <laughs> My family's gonna be happy. Well, he's not, he's a eunuch, so he's not like there's no family there, but it's um I'll take I'll take your leftover barbecue. No problem. Verse 17, as for these use. Here we see it again. God gave them knowledge and intelligence in every branch of literature and wisdom. And now Daniel, we're told, even understood all kinds of visions and dreams. God gave him the supernatural ability. And we'll see chapter 2. He'll be even able to, like, through God's hand, the king is fascinated. He's going to all his guys and say, I had this dream. I didn't know what it means. Like, okay. He's like, no, 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 no. You tell me what I dreamt. And then tell me what it meant. That way I can know you're authentic. And they're like, oh, you're crazy. And then all the guys, like, basically, there's, they're all getting executed. They come for Daniel. And Daniel's like, whoa, before you kill us, give me a shot. And he basically says, this is what you dreamt, and this is what it meant. But we'll look at that next week. As soon as I figure out where we are. Okay, verse 18. So then at the end of the days, which the king had specified for presenting them to the commander, the commander of the officials, presented them before Nebuchadnezzar. Their three years, all of their training, everything had happened. They're sort of like this meet and greet with the king. And so I imagine the 70 kids or whatever it was, sort of at this, this dining hall experience. But the king is in their presence and he's sort of searching the crowds. Let me just say what it says. The king talked with them. So he goes, he's having pleasantries and and through this, out of them all, not one was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's personal service. The king says, I want those four. They're going to enter into my courts. They're going to spend their time with me. I don't know what happened to the other guys. But these four stood out. Um, Verse 20, as for every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king consulted them, he found them ten times better than all the, magi all the magicians 
and conjurers who were in his realm. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. <clears throat> that last phrase is really important. So, so, so chapter 1 of Daniel seems to be this like broad stroke of Daniel's life, telling of these specific points. But it's really over the course of his whole life. Daniel starts in Daniel 1. He's a young kid between 9 and 14, whatever age you want to speculate that he was. So imagine any nine-year-old. He's going to ask Noah to stand up because he's like right in the middle there. Oh, he actually did it. I said I was going to, but he did it for me. So, and Noah, you're 12, right? I just make sure. I don't know if he had a birthday. Yeah, 12. Okay, you can sit down. I, I was actually asking you to stand up. Imagine. I was like, actually, Noah, hey, come on up here. Yeah. Now everybody's going to hide because I'm going to look for the oldest person here. For this young Noah, we're going to go send him to Berkeley for four years. No, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. He's like, no. But he's sent away. Like, this is, Dan- this is about how old Daniel was through his training. But then we have Cyrus. Thanks for coming up. You can go back. He's like, <laughs> you know, let him get his wiggles out. But when we read about Cyrus the king, we're going through history 70 years. The, the dating from 605 to wherever he reigned, there's like between 539 B.C. and 536 B.C., um, the, the New American Commentary, what it says on this dating, it says apparently the writer's point was that Daniel lived throughout the entire Neo-Babylonian period, the exile, and continued into the reign of Cyrus when the Jews were released from captivity, thus outliving his Babylonian masters. So by the end of this book, Daniel is 85, 95 As we go through this, Daniel's going to age. We're going to look at his life, and God's going to do these extraordinary things in Daniel's life. So, as we look at this, as we end here, like the theme of Daniel, like, so we see this story about like the king's food. We see this, you know, what we see three times. Verse 2 the Lord gave. Verse 9, God granted Daniel. Verse 17, as for these four use, God gave them knowledge. So the theme of Daniel is there's a God in heaven. He is sovereign over the nations. He is directing and shaping world history towards his own end. We might, we might not like or understand the hardships that we're personally going through in this life. We might not like or understand the things and the situations that are happening in this world, but Christians of all people should be the most level-headed, calm people that exist. But we tend to freak out at elections. Like God cares about America. I hate to say it, like, God is just one nation in history that doesn't make the Bible. Like, we think that we're such a big deal. God, America's not in the Bible. And I, and I say this, I was, I'm a patriot. I was a Navy SEAL for 12 years. I've lost all sorts of buddies in combat. But the reality is, the world doesn't revolve around America. The world revolves around God. 
And there are all sorts of nations that are going to be judged and held accountable. In the midst of all of the evil that's happening in the world, God's in control. He's not asleep at the wheel. He's doing things that we can't fathom what he's doing. And we'll see through Daniel that things are going to unfold and transpire. But we can rest easy because God is in control. He is sovereign over all. I saw one quote this week. Dale Davis said this, Sometimes God may allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us, which is fascinating, beautiful. Have you ever considered that you might be going through a difficult time because God's going to use you in another's life? I can't tell you how true that is in my own life from like being raised in an abusive home to see what God allowed to happen to me as a child to Anna and I shortly after marriage losing our first child through a miscarriage to see how God used that experience so that we could demonstrate God's mercy and grace to other people? Did I want those things? Of course not. But sometimes God might allow hardships to reach us because he wants his mercy to reach beyond us. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this man, Daniel. We thank you that you have um, preserved many aspects of his life, Lord, for us to, to learn from, to grow from. It's so easy for us to gloss over what this young kid went through as to, to think a, a 9 to 14 year old. We don't know what happened to his family. They could have been executed for all we know. We don't know whether Daniel was made a eunuch. It's possible. There's so much that he could have been angry and bitter and mad about. But Lord, he had a community around him, his family that poured into him and taught him about you that he could draw from to build his convictions so that when he was faced with difficult situations, that he was able to, um, to get through them. Certainly standing up to the commander asking for, for fruits and vegetables and water was, was a, dangerous, a dangerous task. Certainly he could have lost his life over it, but we see through this, through all of this hardship that he went through, that you allowed it to happen. And we see this young man, Daniel, um, walking with you in a way that he had courage, he had stability, that his heart was tethered to you, that he could trust whatever was going to happen. Um, Father, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to draw close to you. Father, we pray for those in this room that maybe don't know you through Christ, that they would open their hearts to Christ. Father, for those of us that know Christ, we ask, Lord, that you would help us to, to really um, to open our mind and hearts uh, to your sovereignty, that you're in control, that you're in charge, that, that, that your plan is unfolding before us, and we don't have to, to fret. We know that Christ conquered the grave, ultimately killing death, so that we no longer have to fear death. God, we pray for our nation. We'll learn from Daniel how to pray, how to, um, 
to, to pray for the community around us. Father, there are so many people that don't know you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us wisdom as we seek you, that we would be a light for you, and that you would use us, Lord, to bring spiritual feasting to those around us. We love you, God. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.